I got a slot I use in my lectures, and you know, the Dalai Lama saying a lack of transparency breeds distrust. So people are always wondering, like, well, you know, I'm working hard. I'm dealing with all the stressors we just mentioned. Am I being fairly compensated? And, you know, what I try to do is to show them that at your same level, uh, you're, you're getting what your peers are getting. There's gender equity, which is obviously a, a key issue. If you don't disclose the salaries, you're not going to know if there's gender equity in the practice. And, you know, that's a big thing I'm pushing for emergency medicine as a whole. You know, we don't see what's billed and paid in our name. Besides gender equity and feelings of distrust, I mean, you're, you're legally bound to see that. You, you would test the honest billings. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word from the creator of the podcast, born in June, raised in April. Hi, my name is April Dinwiddie, and I host a podcast called Born in June, Raised in April, What Adoption Can Teach the World. As a transracially adopted person, I share insights and conversations with other folks in the community, and we deconstruct identity, relationships, and facing and embracing differences of race, culture, and class. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for joining, and hello, 2022. In today's conversation, I am joined by two friends and two colleagues. I've known them for over 25 years. Dr. Darren Wiggins is the vice chair in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, the Hamptons. He's also the chair of the Physician Leadership Committee there. Darren is also a fan of point-of-care ultrasound. That's ultrasound, which many of you know is my subspecialty within my specialty of emergency medicine. He also was a chief resident when I was a medical student during my first emergency medicine rotation. More on that in a minute. Dr. Robert McNamara, Bob, currently serves as the chairman at Temple University Hospital Department of Emergency Medicine. This is the busiest level one trauma center in the Delaware Valley. He's nationally and internationally known, perhaps best for his achievements as a founding member of AAEM. That's the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. In 1996 until 2002, Bob served as its president, and since 2015, he has been the chief medical officer of the AAEM Physician Group. What this does is to help preserve physician-owned practices in emergency medicine. So back to the story. The year was 1996, and I had just returned from a, a research year. In other words, I took a year off from medical school to do research. In returning, I thought I need to get back into the clinical mindset and up until this point, I thought I was going to be a surgeon. I was going to apply in ENT head and neck surgery. That's ear, nose, and throat. I knew I liked it. I knew I didn't love it. So emergency medicine was going to provide me with a great general exposure to a lot of different kinds of patients and a lot of different kind of patient presentations. I wanted to do it at the best place in the region. And the best place in the region was MCP, the Medical College of Pennsylvania. In that emergency medicine residency at the time, Darren was the chief resident and Bob was the program director, also known as the residency director. Within a week of that rotation, I said to myself, self, where have I been? This is it. I'm seeing patients with heart attacks, with strokes, with lacerations, with fractures, pregnant patients, elderly patients, newborns. It was fantastic. And to be clear, it wasn't just the content and the patient care presentations. It was the people. It was Darren and it was Bob. Bob was ahead of his time. 
I saw him focused on resident wellness, physician wellness, and taking care of the family, your faculty, more than I'd ever seen before. In fact, I'd never seen this at any other place and in any of my other rotations. And this was the late 90s. Okay, let's get to the conversation so you can hear more about this focus on wellness and prevention of burnout. In the late 90s, I wasn't hearing anybody speaking about resident wellness. I did that rotation at MCP, and you, Bob, were talking about wellness. You were making sure the length of the shifts was not too long, and you made sure all of your residents were okay. Where did that come from? Because I didn't see that anywhere else. Well, some of it was my personal experience. You know, when I was a resident, the weakest of the herd, I was paired with, and the program director, you know, really rode that doc hard. And I said, you know, if you put somebody on the match list, you're essentially saying you're you're going to welcome them into your family. And I thought like, you know, you can't do that. This is somebody's career and you got to do everything you can to support them. And, you know, the more I looked into it, the more I really comes down to, and I still hold these principles today. If you're going to be an educator, you know, your, your students have got to be in the right frame of mind to receive that education. And if they're depressed um, they're not in that you know clear state of mind. They're not going to learn. The second thing is, you know, in emergency medicine, it's a contact sport between the attendings and the residents. You're there all the time at the bedside, and you're working with them. And like, why would you, as an attending physician, want to work with somebody who's depressed? That's going to make you depressed. And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. It's a team. We hear about that all the time. And you know, we we see every case, the residencies, and it, it just it's from an educational standpoint, a well-being standpoint. It was sort of like a personal value and something that when I said I was going to take the program director role, that was definitely going to be one of my you know, main points, that we're going to have an adult educational environment. It's not going to be you know, the attendings up there and the residents down here, and, and it's going to be a better learning environment. Mm-hmm. And how have you continued that approach to wellness now that you are a chairman and overseeing faculty? Yeah, so it's it's really the same kind of thing, a little bit different because, you know, you have a resident for three years and you have a faculty hopefully for 20 or 30 years. And I, I people say, well, what do you do as a chairman? And I say, you know, the simplest description of my job is I'm the head BS deflector for the faculty. I try to keep out the distractions, the, the needless things that EM is difficult enough without outside interference. And I, I sort of my underlying principle is that we should do everything we can in the workplace to keep it from affecting an emergency physician's personal life. You should not be bringing negative things into your household because that's that's my core belief. I don't want my job to interfere with my family. And it's really just the principles of openness, transparency, support. You know, you have to hold them to the task. It's not to say, you know, you let folks get away with slacking, not doing the job, not teaching the residents correctly, but they can feel supported if you have their back. I think that's, you know, step one to let them know that you do have their back. So Darren, you, you came from this very nurturing, uh, wellness focused environment in you know, academics, and you went into private practice and which of the values or how have you transformed these values into your workplace, knowing that maybe your decisions and the way you lead your group might be a little bit adjacently different. 
Um, you know, I think it is private practice is obviously different than an academic practice. Um, and that took some learning, you know, on my part. And when I, when I first came out here, um, AO is very aggressive. Um, I had to learn to tone it down. I, I had a little bit of too much McNamara in my blood um, when I first came out here and I had to learn to behave in a, in a community <laughs> that didn't necessarily like emergency doctors. Um, does that mean like just confrontational uh, conversations or a voice level? What did that mean? I gave a very stern lecture to a 50-year-old surgeon as a 28-year-old ER doctor about how to evaluate abdominal pain um, my first day. And he didn't, <laughs> didn't appreciate it. And the, the chair of emergency medicine was sitting next to me and he turned to me and he said, well, I, I guess that's why I brought you out here. And I was like, oh, too much, huh? And I, I didn't honestly didn't think I had done anything wrong. And then when I, I mean, now I look back on it, I'm like, are you nuts? You, you basically just really talked down to a 50 year old surgeon who's been here for 20 years. Um, but I was right. I mean, <laughs> I was right. He was yelling at me for not doing a KUB on an abdominal pain, and I basically read him the riot act about how that was going to be absolutely zero value, and I wasn't going to back down. Um, but whatever, it was um, probably wouldn't do it today. Um, the but anyways, it was a, it was a, a learning curve um, of transitioning into a, a, a non academic setting, um, and I and I came into a very untrained group. Um, you know, much like Bob moving into Temple, I moved into a, a, a group where I was one of two board certified ER doctors out of eight. Um, and I was the young kid on the block and not necessarily welcomed, quite frankly. Um, as much as the CEO wanted me here, I don't think anybody else did. Um, and that was tough, you know. Um, and, you know, six months later, they asked me to be the chair and that was a whole other shock at 28. Um and I went back down to Philly and I went to meet with Dr. Wagner and, and said, I, I don't know what to do. This is insane. And he very frankly said, you know, A, they should never have offered you this position. But if they're stupid enough to offer it to you, grab the bat and swing. And he said, if by some miracle of God, you hit the ball, you're set for life. And, you know, 25 years later, he obviously is a very wise man. Um, you know, I swung as hard as I could and uh, I was very lucky. And now we have an all board certified group. There's uh, six of us out here in a private democratic group that was set up on the principles of AEM um, that has honestly protected me long term. Um, and it was one of the smartest things I've ever done. Dr. McNamara, you've got the microphone. Audience members may not be familiar with emergency medicine, and they certainly may not be familiar with AAEM. Can you give them a brief primer? And underlying that, why did you think that was important, similar to how you thought resident wellness was so important? Yeah, so the American Academy of Emergency Medicine founded on two key principles. One, it was the first all-board certified organization. And as you remember, there was a, an issue there. The American board was being sued to reopen the EM certification to practice track people. So that was a big issue. But really, the second issue was corporate control, exploitation of emergency physicians, and it was the initial phases, it was, you know, one or two doctors taking advantage of their colleagues, holding the contract, doing the billing, collecting, and, and paying them less than what they were generating. And it was all sort of summed up in a book written by Jim Keeney called The Rape of Emergency Medicine, kind of a, you know, a brutal title for these days, but essentially talking about exploitation. And I read the book 
And I realized that I had actually been exploited when I was a moonlighting resident working for a company called Fisher Mangold up in Eastern Pennsylvania. You know, I resuscitated a 20 year old with a tricyclic antidepressant overdose by myself on the night shift, intubated her against the rules. And I realized that um, the contract holder was in California and made as much money on that case as I did. And I felt slimed. And I, and I realized, like, whoa, I did that when I was a resident. I still like have negative effects. What if your whole career is like that? And essentially, I said, look, I'm a program director. I'm enticing people into the specialty. I'm doing my best I can to make them a great doc. And then releasing them into a world where they may feel like they're getting taken advantage of. And it's an underlying principle I've always held. You can't do a difficult job if you feel you're being taken advantage of. And that's emergency medicine. We're there 24-7 nights, weekends, holidays. You guys know it. Your listeners may not. But it is inherently stressful. You know, last week, got to tell a 16-year-old's mom that they're dead, shot in the head in Temple. You know, that's the way things go. And then to feel you're being exploited, you're just not going to last. And again, that will be the whole thing. You'll start burning out. You'll get angry with your patients. You'll be angry with your job. You'll bring that home to your family. You know, you won't want to go into your shifts when you come home. And it's it, 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 it makes you a doctor who is not in the best frame of mind to care for the patient, regardless of the money, right? Regardless of the how much the financial exploitation is, you know, it's just pernicious effects and it's out there. And we're well aware of burnout in emergency medicine. I think this is a major factor, feeling like a cog in the wheel, not having autonomy. In a physician-doing group like you have with Darren, I mean, that's the ultimate form of emergency medicine practice. So AAM fit right into that whole concept of being a program director, caring about wellness, and, you know, wellness post-graduation. What is your role now in AAEM? So I'm the chief medical officer of the AM Physician Group, which actually tries to help start up more opportunities like, like Darren has. We try to support independent groups. We've started a few groups. We've taken a, a couple groups that were owned in different manners and converted them into partnerships. Uh, we are, I'm sort of the point person for AAM for problems with corporate practice of emergency medicine. We are looking at private equity is now in emergency medicine, which is just unbelievable to me. Private equity and caring for the, the poor, the vulnerable, you know, a 20% return on investment for, for lay people. It just doesn't make any sense that private equity is in our sphere. So I think most people tell you that I'm probably the number one enemy of private equity. Um, we're dealing with issues right now. There will be some stuff released Surely about AAM efforts along those lines. We've been constantly fighting this with some degrees of success. We filed suit a couple times and we helped the doctors out. Doctors get fired when they speak up about the quality of care. Um, you know, there's fortunately there, there are cases now where physicians are rising up and saying, you know, we're not going to take it anymore. You know, like Dr. Ray Brova just won $26 million against Envision slash MCARE for They fired him because he, said, this is wrong. I can't have my doctors responsible for this much clinical stuff. You got them running in six different directions when the night shifts. It's unsafe for patients. They terminated him. He sued. He won big. Um, you know, EM's got to take it back. There's a whole new movement called Take EM Back, which uh, I'm on their advisory board. That's great. And burnout. 
And I'm wondering if both of you can share for the audience what burnout looks like. Uh, Darren, in private practice, what has it looked like to you? Not necessarily you, but maybe you. And what does it look like in your practice? And then, Bob, what does it look like to you? And what does it look like in 2021 versus maybe the early 2000s? Darren, why don't you go first, then, Bob? You know, I think any doctor who practices emergency medicine long enough is going to either experience burnout themselves or or be affected by it in a partner or, or someone around them. Um, and it's tough. It, it's really rough. Um, and it's incredibly emotionally draining. Um, and I'm not sure I know how to stop it, honestly. Um, once it develops, um, I, I've tried. I, I've been through it with friends, through close, close friends. Um, and and um, it's you know, the key is not to let it start. You know, honestly, that that's the key, um, because once you've hit that wall, I don't know how to make that person run again, you know, once both their legs are broken. Um, and it, it's tough um, because they, they I, I've seen doctors, much better doctors than me, be unable to practice emergency medicine um, and much smarter than me, with much more resilience than me, who who can save lives much faster and better than I can who just can't practice emergency medicine, you know, and, and in some ways it's almost, it's almost the, the better ER doctors burn out faster because they set such a high standard for themselves. They hold themselves to such a high level um, that they can't accept any deviation from perfection and it, it kills them. Um, and eventually we all make mistakes and eventually we all stumble. Um, none of us are perfect. And, um, I think that makes it extremely difficult, but there's also just the pressure of, um, of survival. You know, I mean, there is that constant, we are, we are under the microscope constantly from peers, um, you know, from other specialties, from the hospital um, and uh, finding ways to, to keep sanity um, is not easy. And, and I think health is, is mental health is a huge, huge part of our profession and I think the more we talk about it, the better, because then you identify it and you see it in yourself and you have to set limits of to what I'm willing to do. Um, you know, um, I think, and you said in 2021, obviously it's a little bit different. We obviously all just went through an incredibly difficult two years together. Um, and, and you know, uh, you and I have talked about it, but setting, I had to set limits of what I was willing to do um, and how far I was willing to push myself. Um, my residency helped a great deal because I knew what I could do. You know, I knew that I could push myself extremely far. Um, but at the same time, I knew there was a limit. There was a limit where I would start to fall apart. Um, you know, I remember in residency, there was one night where I got up and started driving to work. And I thought it was seven o'clock in the morning. And I was driving, driving, driving down the school coal. And all of a sudden, I realized the sun was going down. And I had gotten so backwards that I was off by 12 hours. And that was a moment where I thought, okay, you're pushing a little too far here. You're starting to lose you know, reality. Um, you know, and I also woke up at four o'clock in the morning one time and called a friend like it was four o'clock in the afternoon and started carrying on a normal conversation. And he was like, you're nuts. You know, and, and a little bit I was. Um, but those are just you know, minor examples. Of, but it, it does. That's, it's not, we don't live normal lives. Um, and um, you know, I think it's very important um, and there are obviously there's books and strategies, but I, I think we need to teach it more. And I think we need to really, it's hard for residents because when you're 22, I don't think you really understand it. And you can, you can use your youth and your strength to kind of muscle through it. Um, you're going to lose that. And you've got to have other skills um, on how to get through it. 
And um, I think it's very, very important that we teach them that. Yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of people are now saying it's moral injury, not burnout. That, you know, it's burnout sort of blames the, the victim of it. And we could talk on this for hours if there's numerous things. You know, I think the things that have changed between 2000 and, and 2021 is, is the growing corporatization of medicine as a whole, and certainly emergency medicine, where more and more people find themselves in a job where they feel they're just a commodity to be used. So we've seen consolidation in the industry. The pandemic, you know, brought this out. I mean, what happened to doctors during the pandemic? I can tell you the docs working for these corporations got their hours cut, got their pay cut, said, oh, no more CMA. You want to scribe, you got to pay for it. And then you turn around and you you see that, you know, the head of the Blackstone Group increases net worth from, you know, $14 billion to $37 billion. I mean, it's it's just that thing in your face. So why was I doing all that work? So it's so multifactorial. And you got to kind of attack the things that you you can control. I mean, I believe the serenity prayer was written for emergency medicine. I got it right on my bulletin board. Um, you know, it's same with the patients, you know, with the, the tough stuff we see. I mean, in Philly, obviously, violence is rampant this year. Uh, the opioid crisis, you know, one of our community sites that drives a lot of business, the Temple, is right in the heart of that. And you see, you see all these ongoing tragedies. And again, you have to have that tolerance. I mean, people, when I interview residents, they say, what's the number one thing you're looking for? I said, well, if you made it to a residency interview, you're already academically qualified. I want to know you're a tolerant person so that you can come to the CD and, and continue to treat people like human beings that they deserve. And it's tough. And I, you know, Darren's right on there with the perfectionism issue. Uh, we, you know, we're always running at the top of our game to get into medical school and then into emergency medicine. And you've got to be, you know, willing to set some limits, as Darren said. I mean, I have a, I had a cardinal rule. Family came first. So I always made sure I had at least one meal a day with the family. And no matter what I was going to do, if I started to interfere with the family, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to serve on that committee. And I'm not going to take that shift. No, nope, it's not going to work. And, you know, some of the themes here is that, you know, when doctors aren't in charge of their practice, they're more subject to these things. You know, how can you have a, you know, a 60-year-old doc working night shifts when all the literature says that's when they should stop doing night shifts? You're working for the company. They're going to fire you. Well, you don't want to do night shifts. I'll just bring in a younger doc. You're working for a physician group. You know, you make accommodations around that. You know, you help out your colleagues. So it's, it's a complex topic. Um, but, you know, I think we got to try to look at the stressors we can control. And I think some of that is, you know, restoring emergency medicine so that physicians are deciding on what is best for physicians to keep them healthy. Yeah. So this ties into leadership and how you lead. And Bob, you mentioned authenticity, transparency, and I'm going to throw in communication, three aspects to leadership that I think are very, very important. And um, one of your former faculty uh, spoke to me recently about your approach to salary transparency. And I'm wondering if you can share, in, if you want specifically about uh, salary, how you approach that, but just in general, the importance of transparency when leading a faculty. Yeah, so, you know, the way you get paid in an academic medical center, at least at, at Temple, is 
you get raises when you go up in rank. Um, you know, professors, associates, assistant professors, we try to target people to the 50th percentile of the double AMC rank for the Northeast region. So there's encouragement to publish papers, to get good teaching evals, to get promoted. Um, I, on an interim basis, I did it like a couple months ago. I send out to every faculty member what every other faculty member makes. You see your name, you see your salary, you see everybody else's. Um, I got a slot I use in my lectures, and you know, the Dalai Lama saying a lack of transparency breeds distrust. So people are always wondering, like, well, you know, I'm working hard. I'm dealing with all the stressors we just mentioned. Am I being fairly compensated? And, you know, what I try to do is to show them that at your same level, uh, you're, you're getting what your peers are getting. There's gender equity, which is obviously a, a key issue in emergency medicine. How can you not, you know, if you don't disclose the salaries, you're not going to know if there's gender equity in your practice. And, you know, that's a big thing I'm pushing for emergency medicine as a whole. You know, we don't see what's building paid in our name. Besides gender equity and feelings of distrust, I mean, you're, you're legally bound to see that. You, you would test the honest billings. And if they're actually taking money out of your pocket, you could be participating in, in prohibitive fee splitting. So I think having transparency, a set of fairness, everybody knows the shift rules. We split the nights up. We split the holidays up. When you turn 60, you're going to get off of night shifts. Um, you know, leadership principles, I know what you're going through. Uh, I still work two shifts a week, you know, despite all the other commitments. And I'm on the front lines. I'm working all the sites, you know, of the ED. I work the, the green zone tomorrow, which is the low acuity zone, which is not the sexiest. It's bread and butter. It's doing abscesses, lacerations, car accidents. And I work the front. I work the red zone. I take care of the shootings just like, like everybody else. So, you know, it's they said Patton was a great leader because he was on the front lines. I mean, the guy was an asshole. So if you can be a Patton without being, you know, the butthead, I think people appreciate that you know what they're going through, not asking them to do things that, you know, you, you wouldn't be doing yourself. So sort of just very simple principles. Um, and again, having the back of the faculty, you know, look, if you make a mistake, something happens, you screw up a case, I'll be there to defend you because, you know, we're, we're all imperfect. Yeah. How have faculty received that transparency of seeing the salaries of each other? Um, you know, you get the occasional question or two and you got to be ready for it. And most of it is just, you know, when you bounce up from an assistant to associate, there is a raise the institution gives you and it doesn't usually put you on par with the other associate professors. So you got to be ready for those questions. And you answer them honestly. This is the way it worked. That's how it goes. Um, I think overall, though, you get con- People just say, thank you for sending it. I, I just feel better about it. And, and yeah, I guess the proof of the pudding is your faculty leave. And, you know, the only faculty I've lost at sort of the, the mid to senior level have gone on to take program director positions. And Jay Upper is still our program director. And, you know, he's, I think, one of the top three program directors in the country. So they, they, they're, they're going to get promoted, which is, you know, that's good. Um, so having them stay at a place like Temple that's, and you know, get a difficult environment. I mean, that's, I think, part of the reason they do, because they feel they're being treated fairly, that they know I have their back. Um, that's, I think, you know, what, what I try to look for in leadership. That's what I appreciated with Dave Wagner. And he was on the front lines, and I took that lesson from him. 
More on leadership and leadership in emergency medicine. Bob, what have you seen the people that have fallen as leaders or failed as leaders or really hit obstacles uh, and tripped? Uh, can you summarize where you see that, when you see that? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the direction of the specialty with corporatization, you you have to be emergency medicine. You know, you have to look at the core mission of it. We are attracting people to the specialty who generally all have a sense of social justice. Right? When medical students sign up for an EM residency, they know they're going to take care of the most vulnerable in society. And what we've seen is organizations ignoring that whole aspect of emergency medicine and allowing the for-profit private equity corporate interest into the specialty of emergency medicine and then rationalizing it by saying, well, we need those big private equity companies to fight the insurance industry. And it's, it's really, it's become a Faustian bargain. We are, you know, we just lost a major thing on the out of network billing issue. The, uh, the, we got a bill passed, but the uh, rules maker said, you know, we're going to let the insurance industry have to call the shots on this one. And you got to say to yourself, how did that happen to emergency medicine on the pedestal with COVID? And now, you know, HHS is saying eh, it was, they're private equity. That's what they're doing. They're seeing us as a greedy specialty. And I really think we've lost our way. You know, root cause, the reason we got into the ad network issue was because the private equity companies were sending humongous bills out of network to people and they got angry and they contacted their legislators. And next thing you know, patient stories, the insurers pick up on that. Yeah, the insurers are evil, but now they were able to paint us as private equity. So we we made that trade-off. We we partnered and we're still partnering with private equity to get it reversed. And I'm saying like you gotta stick to the core of your profession, stick to your ethics. You are here for the patient. Do you really think private equity is here for the patient? And it's just simple. And it, it's all this obfuscation and, well, no, there's no proof the private equity is bad. And I'm like, well, I got plenty of proof for you in the stories I've heard and what I've seen with patients. And it's almost empiric that an industry that wants a 20% return on investment, that's first duty is to the investors, shareholders should not be in with a specialty whose first duty is to the patient. So really, you know, focusing on that. And then secondarily, as a professional society, if you're going to lead, you've got to have the doctor's interest first. The bedside doctor is the core of emergency medicine. The doctor that's in Darren's shop, in that rural hospital, in that academic medical center, you have got to be 100% focused as a leader on making their lives more tolerable so that they can deliver the best care to the patient. And I think we've lost our way. We've, you know, we've explained things away and we've allowed it to, you know, run out of control. And, you know, I'm hoping, you know, with some of the current actions we're going to be undertaking that we can wrest control back. You know, there's a, there's the younger generations rising up because, you know, they were heretofore able to go out and get a pretty solid job, get paid pretty decently. But now with the tight job market, you know, you're where the workforce studies, the companies have the upper hand. And they're saying, well, we're just going to pay you less and we're going to we're going to make you really work in you know, an oppressive environment. You're going to supervise PAs and NPs and we're going to tell you how many. 
the younger generation is going to, you know, the best hope lies with them to, to rise up. Uh, so we're starting to see that it's their future. I mean, I'm set, Darren set, um, you know, hopefully I'll, you know, be able to convince people to, to change direction and to stand up for the doctors. I looked both of you up before the show in preparation and social media. Uh, Darren, I noticed that you're not on uh, some of the main channels of social media. Bob, you are. And I'd love if you can share your decision to be on Twitter, to be in LinkedIn in terms of using your voice for advocacy for emergency medicine. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> I would recommend a new change to be called in your Facebook, not Facebook. Um, it has its negatives, of course. And Twitter can be nasty. If you've read my Twitter account, I generally only tweet on corporate issues. So I, I try to stay in that sphere. When I, want to, when I want to talk, I'm going to talk about private equity and emergency medicine, you know, doctors having ill effects, and pretty much the same thing on social media. Now, I think it's a great tool. It has really, you know, allowed a lot of people to see the realities of corporate issues. I mean, Facebook in and of itself has its problems, obviously, with all the political stuff. But for emergency medicine as a specialty, it's been extremely valuable for me to be able to get the message out. And the younger generation has taken up on it. So you had EM Docs, which started, which was all emergency docs. And a couple of young docs got really fired up and started questioning things. They got booted off that group and they started their own page, Take EM Back, which now has, you know, five, 6,000 of its own members. And then there's a second forum, which because you were censoring everybody. So there's already three groups that have thousands of emergency positions. So when an issue becomes hot and topical, you know, private equity, you know, Team Health is suing United Health Group and back and forth, you can state it, you can show it, you can weigh in on it. So I think we have a much more informed generation. People know the story behind private equity. It's not hidden. It's not like, you know, leaving your residency. Whoa, I never heard of this stuff. Now people are hearing about it. So I think it's great. Uh, you know, you just got to be careful. You know, people will stab you in the back, create fake accounts. Um, you know, somebody took a picture of Temple, created a fake account to try to, you know, throw out accusations about me. And it's part and parcel. It doesn't bother me. But it shows you how low people will go. Uh, but for the most part, I think it's a boon to educating the specialty and hopefully that education results in action. What a great conversation. And before we get to the Risa wrap up, here's a word from the podcast creator of the L word doctors and litigation. Doctors and litigation. The L word is a self-contained podcast curriculum that uses interviews and storytelling to give you the practical and psychological preparation required to survive and even thrive during and after medical malpractice litigation. So, audience, hopefully you feel as if you've gotten a little bit of a history lesson in emergency medicine and a little bit more insight into burnout, into the clinical environment, and into what it's like to be an emergency physician. I'm deeply appreciative to Bob and to Darren for making time for this in their calendars and for not being flexible with making sure our audio quality was what it should be. What I saw in Bob, what I've seen in Darren as they've progressed in their careers and in their leadership is an emphasis on communication, transparency, 
and integrity. Oh, not to minimize equity. Thanks for joining me, audience. See you next week to be continued. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.